Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Stephen Liu and Dr. Narjus Duma. This is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. And this is Dr. Narjus Duma, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Today, we are your hosts for Lung Cancer Considered. And this episode, we recap a recent ISLC meeting, Targeted Therapies for Lung Cancer, or TTLC 2022. Right, Narjus. And this has historically been a very popular, interactive, fast-paced meeting that highlights the latest and most innovative anti-cancer drugs. Uh, in years past, it had been focused on targeted agents, uh, but in recent years, it's extending to immunotherapy, sort of a different type of targeted drug. This year, uh, as with last year, the meeting was virtual, but it was a very successful meeting. And today we'll be talking with two of the chairs for the targeted therapies meeting and one of the attendees. We're joined by Dr. Alicia Sequist, a thoracic medical oncologist at Massachusetts General Hospital, the Landry Family Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and the director of the Center for Innovation in Early Cancer Detection, a board member of the ISLC. Leisha, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me. We're also lucky to have a wonderful patient advocate and activist, Mrs. Ivy Elkins. Ivy was diagnosed with a stage four lung cancer in December of 2013 as a healthy 47-year-old. Ivy was found to have a EGFR mutation and has spent years since her diagnosis educating herself, educating other patients, and advocating for the, patient, the care of patients with lung cancer. Ivy is also the co-founder of the EGFR Resistors Lung Cancer Patient Group. Ivy, thank you for being here. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for inviting me to be part of the podcast. And our final guest is Dr. Charu Arwa, thoracic medical oncologist at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and the Leslie Haisler, Associate Professor of Lung Cancer Excellence at the University of Pennsylvania. Charu, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this podcast. We are delighted to have the three of you to talk about this very important meeting. For some people may not be familiar with targeted therapies for lung cancer, Charu, what is the purpose of TTLC and how it usually works? So the targeted therapies uh, of lung cancer meeting celebrated its 22nd year this year, and uh, we thought it was especially auspicious since it, the opening day occurred on 2-22-22. But as uh, you may have heard in Dr. Herbster's lecture, uh, the faculty keynote lecture, he took us uh, on a walk through memory lane. Uh, the first meeting of targeted therapies um, for lung cancer took place in 2001 in, in Aspen. And this was pioneered by visionaries, Dr. Bunn and Johnson, really thinking about how can we bring uh, people together to talk about advances, specifically as they relate to targeted therapies. Of course, over the last 22 years, we've witnessed many developments, starting with uh, EGFR, 
But now we have sessions not just on targeted therapies, but also immunotherapy. And we have sessions on uh, resistance, monitoring resistance, minimally invasive techniques such as liquid biopsies. We are talking about new drugs in mesothelioma. And I think there is just so much enthusiasm for this meeting. In fact, it's my favorite lung cancer meeting of every year. Ivy, can you speak to the value of a meeting like this from a patient advocate perspective? Sure. For patient advocates, a meeting like targeted therapies is so valuable because it gives us access to all the latest discoveries in lung cancer right from the researchers who are doing the work. It's a great source of information that we can translate into more understandable, patient-friendly terminology and communicate back to our patient communities so that we can increase knowledge and hope for the future. It's also a huge plus that IASLC allows patient advocates who are living with lung cancer as as either patients or caregivers to attend meetings like targeted therapies with registration rates that are waived, which makes it so much more accessible for many of us who are basically, you know, doing patient advocacy as individuals on a voluntary basis. Now, Alicia, uh, I agree with Charlie. This is one of my favorite meetings, Um, but the format of this meeting's changed quite a bit. Uh, Obviously, it was virtual this year, but I think beyond that, the, the structure of the meeting is very different. You know, in years past, this was a meeting of many, many very short talks. That's changed a little bit. Can you tell our listeners, maybe people who haven't been to this meeting, how the meeting had been structured in the past? Sure, Stephen. I like the way you said many, many, because that certainly was the structure of TTLC in the past. All the talks would be five minutes uh, with a few exceptions. Um, but the, the days were long, uh, often 10-hour days with five-minute talks going all day. It was, it was encyclopedic. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I don't think anyone could really honestly say that they would attend the entire meeting because you, can't, you, you just can't concentrate on five-minute talks for 10 hours a day. Um, I think one of the highlights of the way that we used to do it before the pandemic was that it did give us a chance to spend some time talking about every drug, literally every drug that was being studied in lung cancer, at least a targeted drug. And then, as you mentioned, in the more recent years, immune therapy was added. Um, It gave us a chance to compare and contrast some drugs of the same class um, as they would each be presented in a row. And then there would be a group discussion afterwards. Um, And it was very, very useful for people whose research focused on a specific target. You could um, really concentrate during that session and understand some of the fine details between the different drugs or understand the different strategies that companies were um, approaching the development of their drug. But I think it was harder for trainees uh, and for advocates and or for people who didn't um, hyper-focus in on one specific field to get a sense of what was going on in that field. It was very focused on the details. Um, 
And, and a lot of us, or I can speak for myself that I would sit in on some of the sessions and just because you can't concentrate on the entire meeting, you know, I would spend a lot of time collaborating with others in the hallway, going to advisory boards, going to meetings of other organizations and ISLC groups. So it was a very, um, uh, the meeting had a lot of purposes. In addition to the formal program, there was a lot of other side meetings going on, very productive um, and very collaborative. But Leisha, one of the other advantages of having so many talks just numerically is that everyone got a chance to speak. And for I think for a lot of trainees, this is probably the first time that they're speaking to their peers, right? Absolutely. And then for those of us who were, you know, more senior, it might be the first time that we got to meet the junior faculty. That was that was basically, you know, your first introduction to junior faculty from other centers. And then you remember, oh yes, I remember, you know, that bright young fellow that spoke on this topic. Um, let's get them to come and, and join our CME because you had been introduced to them at TTLC. And I would like to add something actually very applicable to that. So in 2020, that was our last meeting in person that I remember. Uh, it was targeted therapy. And I met Dr. Mark Awa here from Dana-Farber. I met him then, and several months later, he emailed me and said, NJ, we have a job at Dana-Farber. And it wouldn't have been possible, and Tira, if I wouldn't have met him at Target Therapy, and he had directly, you know, reach out for me to apply to my current job. So, in fact, this is an example that, yeah, Target Therapy helps you connect with junior faculty. For sure. That was a big change, you know, like a new job. But I, I think so many people have had the opportunity to get pulled into a project or a grant or, you know, just make any kind of new connection in the halls of TTLC. Of course, it's a string case, but Target Therapy will always have a special place in my heart because <laughs> I have my current job due to that. As we contrast, you know, what we're just talking about, the in, the meetings in person, the networking and the five minute uh, presentations. What is different now in the structure over the last two years? For the 2021 meeting, we knew from the time we started planning it that it would have to be virtual. Uh, the pandemic was just not in a place where we even considered it being um, a live meeting. And we knew we had to cut way down on the time uh, for the meeting because of Zoom fatigue. You know, there was really just no way to simply translate the old format into Zoom. And so we really kind of started over from scratch last year and adopted an approach that was more of an overview, more of uh, taking advantage of our faculty's amazing expertise in these areas and asking them to synthesize major concepts or talk about major obstacles that we as a field needed to overcome for each tumor type and each targeted therapy type and focus less specifically on each exact drug um, or comparing, you know, one clinical trial that's going on to another similar Me Too drugs clinical trial and talk in general broad strokes. And I think it was very successful in some ways, but as Stephen alluded to, one of the major downsides has been that far fewer faculty are able to actually speak with the, um, you know, significant reduction in the number of, of talks. But at, at the same time, it has given us the ability to do some overview that was missing from the old format, I think. Yeah. Now, obviously there are pros and cons with, with each approach. It's nice to give everyone a chance to speak. And I remember being so nervous at, at the first talk that I, that I gave, which was really, really here. 
but then we would sit through a lot of talks where we'd take furious notes and really try to understand the drug only for the, the concluding lines to be this drug has been discontinued and is no longer <laughs> under investigation. And so we eliminated a lot of those, you know, pros and cons each approach. Now, some of the changes were just practically due to the virtual format, like you mentioned, but um, Charu, when this meeting goes live, you know, hopefully in 2023, will you keep this current format or are we going to go back to the old format? So I was so honored to be invited to co-chair this meeting along with the fabulous group. Alicia, Ram, Roy and Paul just really welcomed me in. And initially, actually, we were planning this as an in-person meeting for 2022. And we're very disappointed when in January, based on the rising positivity rate for uh, based on Omicron that we had to pivot to a virtual meeting. So actually, we had been thinking of retaining some of that format from 2021 into our 2022 meeting, where, you know, we would really have these focused science talks, which would cover the mechanism of action, really talk about which are the key players uh, in terms of drugs, uh, where are the trials, where we are going and offer a perspective. Some sessions had five-minute science talks and some sessions had 10-minute science talks. And really the idea was to bring in panelists to really discuss other practical issues. So spend time on the science, where the field is going, what can we expect rather than each and every molecule. And I think, you know, what comes in 2023 remains to be seen, but I think I would love to see a mix of Let's spend some time on where we are going rather than focusing on every drug. Uh, and I think it's a really fine balance in terms of having the right content and having the right number of speakers. I think one thing is for sure, we're all looking forward to being back in person in 2023. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Ivy, as a patient advocate, I don't know if you've attended meetings in the past, this meeting in the past, but in the current format, how approachable did you find the information being delivered? actually the first time that I've attended targeted therapies. I actually was never able to attend it in person previously. So I, it's hard to imagine um, a 10 hour day filled with five minute presentations. I think that that might've been pretty overwhelming to me. I thought the format of this meeting was excellent. I really, really liked the way it was structured. I liked the discussion of the science and practical considerations and what's going on in, you know, certain subsets of lung cancer. I particularly like the way that uh, recorded, the recorded content was interspersed at the end with live Q&As so that there were opportunities for discussion. And it was also really, really helpful because some of the sessions still went quickly for me, even though I, I recognize that these aren't necessarily, you know, as shotgun, you know, going quickly as in the past, I thought it was hugely helpful to be able to download PDFs of the slides that I could look at a little bit later when I had some more time. In terms of timing, it was really, really good to have most of the sessions just in the afternoon. Well, at least in my time zone here in Chicago, they were in the afternoon. So there was still time to get other work done during the day and avoid 
complete Zoom overload. So overall, I thought it was a very approachable, accessible meeting from a patient advocate point of view. Thank you for sharing that with us, Ivy. I think one of the things that we miss from in-person meeting is the social aspect, the personal interactions, those discussions that happen in a hallway that we eventually end in a clinical trial or a study. This has been particularly difficult for junior faculty and trainees. Um, there are some trainees that started fellowship in 2020 and still have no attended a meeting in person. So in the past, we, we used to see the posters along the front hallway or in the dining room where trainees and junior faculty could speak with more senior faculty. I still remember meeting Dr. Sequis in front of one of my posters at Santa Monica. So Lisha, now in the virtual, virtual format, what do you do, the team, to replicate that aspect of the meeting, that social meeting, that networking opportunities? Yeah, that I, I totally agree with you, Narjas. It's one of the hardest things for trainees, especially those that have been training this entire time during the pandemic. Uh, because I attended the targeted therapies meeting when I was a fellow, I feel like by the time that I joined staff, I really knew who all the major, you know, lung faculty were. I mean, there were less of us at that time, but, you know, even if they didn't know me, I at least knew what they looked like because I had seen them speak at targeted therapies. It's much, it's just much easier to kind of understand the field and and understand who's doing what when you have that connection in your brain of the papers you've read, and then you see them at the podium. And it's just a real shame. Uh, but, you know, I think that um, all of us have gotten better at Zoom and Zoom meetings over these last two years. And I would say one of the most successful aspects of uh, both of the last two TTLC meetings was, was the live chat. And unlike some larger meetings, like say World Lung or, or ASCO or ACR, where there's just really, it's not feasible to have everyone at the meeting be able to chat with each other. And, and you can only submit questions essentially, but can't, can't have an ongoing discussion with other attendees. One great thing about the smaller size of TTLC is the ability to have that live chat that everyone can participate in. You know, that I think in both meetings, that was a lively, active place and, uh, you know, brought me a lot of laughs and, you know, people can ask really uh, thought-provoking questions, but also it's kind of a way to talk to your friends and kind of tease each other lovingly. Um, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Also the posters, you know, for the junior faculty and trainees, they did have um question uh, and answer. So it wasn't exactly a live chat, but, you know, you could, as you were going through the posters, you could post comments and post questions and leave your email if you wanted to talk to the um, poster investigator later. Um, and then we did have a um, happy hour where, um, you know, was a chance to both type and and see and talk with people live. And then, of course, the Twitter feed was ongoing. I think the top Tweeter for the meeting, as per usual, was was Stephen Liu. So that was wonderful. So you know there were there's lots of different ways, but none of it is quite the same. I think to add on to that, I think the meeting from a junior faculty perspective is smaller, so it's less intimidating compared to work conference along cancer. I remember 
me and a work conference along cancer is Steven walking by me. And I was like starstruck, but I didn't say anything because it was so Aww. big and it was so overwhelming. It's so sweet. You know, the chat, I think Chara was talking about how we originally started planning the 2022 meeting as a live event, but we were actually going to keep the chat because it was so successful in 2021. So that even if we were all sitting in the same room, we could be having this uh, chat live discussion with each other during the talks. So maybe we'll see that in 2023. You know, we only grow up from all of this and we had uh, the early career workshop and Ivy was part of the early career workshop as one of the panelists, as well as sharing a presentation about importance of involving and working with patient activists and patient advocates. So for our listeners, Ivy, our some of these advice that you provide trainees and junior faculty members during the early career workshop? First off, I want to say how, you know, important and wonderful it is that the targeted therapies meeting includes this early career workshop for the young investigators. I, you know, sat in on all the talks that came before my session and just heard all this wonderful information that was being shared about mentorship and career opportunities and and all types of things. So I think it's just so fantastic that this this takes place as a part of the meeting and the young investigators are encouraged in this way. In my session, I spoke, as just mentioned, about the importance of focusing uh, research and in keeping research focused on patients. So I talked about including patient advocates in research throughout the life cycle of a project, starting from the beginning and all the way through the dissemination of information that comes from, you know, a particular research project. And I explained how that can really help make the work that they were doing more relevant and meaningful. Because, you know, as opposed to just assuming what patients need, talking to patient research advocates about the what, what the unmet needs are and what patients want more directly through trained research advocate representatives is really, really helpful. I um, also really like the opportunity that was part of the early career workshop to talk to some of the participants in breakout rooms. I was part of a breakout room that covered advocacy and policy, and some of the young investigators stopped by that room and brought up some questions that they had about things like how to get patients more involved in lung cancer awareness in in their area and other topics. And it was really, really nice to have that opportunity for to make a one, you know, one-on-one connection and talk about how to how to help them. I, you know, to 
kind of really miss the networking opportunities that come from having meetings in person. But these breakout sessions helped make some connections, even though it was a virtual format. Well, it's, it's great advice. It was a great session. I think it's pretty valuable, not just for early career, but, but for mid-career and late-career too. So I'd encourage everyone to, to go back and listen to that if they missed it. There are a lot of different sessions at TTLC. There's always been a session of oral presentations by fellows and trainees. And, you know, historically, that's been a great opportunity for junior faculty and fellows to present a scientific abstract in front of their peers and get questions and feedback from established researchers Char, how important was it to keep that in this virtual program? Very important. I think all of us agreed that this should be the highlight. You know, very early on, uh, space was reserved for this session, and we were thrilled to see enthusiastic, um, you know, submissions for the abstract session. We went through all of them. Uh, we had, I think, over 50 uh, submissions for abstracts, and it was actually a really hard job to decide which abstracts would make it to the oral abstract session by the fellows. This year, we had uh, five fellows present, um, Drs. Rikuti, Al-Sava, Grant, Manube, and Zhang uh, from various institutions all across the country. And they presented on various topics, um, you know, targeted therapies, of course, and targetable mutations was a big uh, unifying theme across the presentations where uh, several of the fellows talked about unusual KRAS mutations, uh, some uncommon exon 19 uh, deletions. But there was also an interesting research presented by a second-year resident, no less, on low-dose CT screening in, in Asian and never smokers and how that can impact how we perform screening for individuals that may have not uh, smoked. So I think this was um, one of the things that we were extremely interested to showcase, focus, and I think this will continue to be a theme in upcoming meetings. So as you know, we're talking about the importance of networking and also the importance of keeping the meetings virtual for us to be safe. Charu, do you have any other tips on networking or finding mentors in this new virtual world? It's so difficult, right? I think this is something that we struggle with, not just nationally or, you know, in our communities of lung cancer. We are also struggling with this uh, in our own institutions. I've had fellows uh, join us, as you mentioned earlier, NJ, you know, fellows that started in 2020. Sometimes I can't recognize them in the hallway because I actually physically have not seen them on a consistent basis. Same is true for faculty that are joining. And I think it's a situation that all of us are dealing with and trying to really overcome by forging virtual connections One of the things that was very important to us as we were thinking about this meeting was to really have a space to interact. So as Leisha pointed out, it was important for us to have the chat. And I think this year, the interactive chat feature was really good, uh, where you could even send in reactions and emojis. And I saw a lot of actually fellows and young faculty interacting uh, with everyone, asking questions, asking comments. And, you know, that's the name recognition that really helps early on. And, you know, that's how the conversations begin again. And then it was also important for us to just have a happy hour, get everyone together. And I think hopefully we're at the point where we can start to take these initial meeting touch points that occur virtually, and now we can take it into a physical space uh, with the upcoming ASCO meeting, if not before. 
Now, as, as Narjis mentioned a little earlier, this was the last in-person meeting for, I think, most of us. This was February 2020. And you know, I remember a lot of us talking at the breakfast table about this new coronavirus. None of us really had any idea what we were in for. Um, I think a lot of us have been looking forward to this uh, meeting being live, but you know, due to the Omicron surge, the study had to have been uh, virtual, and it was a little bit of a, a last-minute decision, I think. Leisha, can you maybe shed a little light on on the rush to put together a virtual meeting with what I think is relatively short notice? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There was so much disappointment because people really thought this was going to be their first meeting live in person after it had been the last. And the 2020 targeted therapies meeting was just a couple of weeks before everything changed. And uh, it's kind of surreal thinking back on it. But it was really a no-brainer when it was, you know, descent late December and across the board. I think all of us in the medical field were um, dealing with inc- incredible outages at our hospital staff and just everyone getting pulled into inpatient. And, and it just seemed it was a no-brainer to, to go to virtual. Now, um, as, as luck would have it, as you all know, with, this, with Omicron, it, it kind of came and went so fast that by the time the meeting rolled around at the end of February, you know, maybe it would have been okay to travel, but uh, because the meetings take so much um, preparation with the site and all the different vendors in December, there was just no way to go forward. I think uh, because we had had the experience of the 2021 meeting being virtual, it actually wasn't so bad. And of course, um, you know, uh, Grit Schoenherr at ICS events and the the uh, IASLC staff that work on these meetings, they were quite adept at virtual meetings between the, uh, you know, the two WCLCs and the, you know, the small cell meeting and the liquid biopsy meeting and all these things they had experience with um, doing virtual. So it was okay to, to switch it over to virtual, but uh, it was it was very sad. And I know that the faculty from across the country were also quite sad. I think it was a, a sense of like we were hoping maybe that if the meeting was in person, that things were slightly coming back to normal. But I think virtual meetings are the norm now and hybrid meetings um, allow for people that were probably not able to travel. Like I live in Boston, so all the way to California is quite far the trip. So we can certainly not talk about all the topics from targeted therapy, but one of the important things is the importance of biomarker testing. We all strongly believe in biomarker testing for all patients with advanced non-small lung cancer. There were several talks because not all biomarker testing is the same. DNA versus RNA, liquid versus tissue. Charu, could you help us approach biomarkers testing for a patient with newly diagnosed lung adenocarcinoma? Absolutely, NJ. And I think this is one of the most important things uh, that we can do for our patients, not just to find appropriate targeted therapies, but I think also to make sure that we are affording the benefit of chemoimmunotherapy or immunotherapy, and we're making a scientific, uh, reasonable treatment uh, decision. In my current practice, I do use plasma-based molecular genotyping, and I use it concurrently with tissue-based genotyping based on R and other data suggesting that concurrent testing can increase detection of molecular abnormalities. 
And, you know, there are several platforms. We use an in-house solid tumor sequencing panel, uh, which is both DNA-based and we have a separate RNA fusion panel. I think it's very important to remember that DNA sequencing alone may miss certain fusions. And I think RNA fusion panel uh, should definitely be used, especially in never smokers. In terms of a plasma alone approach, I think uh, even though I'm, an a pro- I'm a proponent of plasma-based genotyping, we have to remember that plasma is not absolute and there are several pitfalls of just using plasma sequencing alone as it's, you know, based on the amount of uh, ctDNA shed, location matters and volume of disease matters. Uh, so my approach has been uh, one of concurrent testing. Uh, we are actually uh, piloting a bunch of different programs, including uh, some very interesting behavioral economic science where we are nudging physicians and clinician teams uh, to remind them to order plasma genotyping so that we can increase our rates of comprehensive genotyping across our institution, across our community sites. Uh, and this has been based on really dismal data that we've seen nationally with regards to molecular testing. I mean, it really should not be that only 50% of the patients get tested, but it should really be 100% of our patients with non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer get tested on diagnosis. And having said that, I think there is emerging evidence that we should be testing not just our non-squamous histologies, but everyone. So I do think that this is where we start the idea of uh, precision care delivery. Thank you, Sharu, for sharing that with us. I think something that equip can be quite difficult is the wait for biomarker testing. You know, for patients that are dealing with a potentially fatal disease, every day feels like a year. So Ivy, in this difficult situation in which, you know, patients need to wait, uh, we all need to wait for biomarker results. Do you have an advice for the clinicians listening to us how to properly explain the value of waiting for the test results to our patients and our patients' family members. No, I just, I completely agree with you. It's so emotionally hard for a patient to find out that they have stage four lung cancer or really any stage lung cancer, but then be told to wait to start treatment. Um, So it's really critically important to explain to the patient why they're waiting and use language that's easily understood by the patient. Um, Most newly diagnosed patients won't know anything about biomarkers and other terminology used in, in lung cancer. So all of that needs to be explained clearly. They won't even know that there are different treatments for lung cancer very likely. So it even needs to move back a step to have that explained to them. And it's really important to stress that the reason the wait is occurring is in order to find the best possible treatment for that specific patient. And it's not likely that that patient's cancer will progress significantly while waiting this relatively short amount of time. That's a huge concern of patients, by the way, worrying that after they've got diagnosed gotten diagnosed and, you know, now they have to have testing and wait that their cancer is going to grow even more. So it's important to address that with patients. 
And whenever possible, also clinicians should try to make sure that a patient has a caregiver with them for this conversation so that there is an other person to take notes and help them remember the discussion. And if that's not possible to ask the patient if they want to record the conversation on their phone to review later and share with their loved ones later. It's just, you know, it's just very complex and people are just emotionally devastated when they hear their diagnosis. And it's a lot to understand right, you know, off the bat. So anything that they can take home with them as well, um, information, written information that describes what biomarker testing is and what biomarkers are being tested and, and what that could lead to is also helpful because frequently I hear patients say that they had biomarker testing, but when I ask, well, you know, do you know what biomarkers you're being tested for or how comprehensive is it? They just don't know. And it's very frustrating for them to wait, you know, a, a couple of weeks to get their results back and then find out that their tissue or blood hasn't been tested for all of the markers that it should have been, and then have to wait another period of time to possibly have that be redone with maybe a second opinion clinician. So just the more transparent and clear and concise and, you know, lay language you can use to talk to patients about this, the, the better. I mean, it's a very difficult space to navigate, and I think it takes a lot of experience. We've learned that there are now a couple different reasons why we have to wait. Um, you know, for the past few years, we've learned the importance of sequence to therapy, which is a relatively new concept, I think, to us. Um, Leisha, can you maybe explain to the listeners why you know it's important to wait for those results, and you know, what do you do if you find yourself in a situation where you simply can't afford to wait? Yeah, it's a really important teaching point over the last couple of years that if you have a, a non-small cell lung cancer patient, uh, newly diagnosed, especially adenocarcinoma, you really need to wait to make sure there aren't any targetable mutations before you start them on immune therapy. And the reason for that is we know that starting with the checkpoint inhibitor, PD-1 or PDL one inhibitor, before uh, and, and then trying to then transition to TKI once you get a result back showing that there is indeed a, a targetable mutation, it can be a setup for toxicity, significant toxicity for some patients. The rates of things like pneumonitis or GI toxicity, um, liver toxicity can be much higher. And it can even become prohibitive for that patient to be able to take the TKI if they've been pretreated with immune therapy um, because of the increased toxicity. So if someone really needs to start on therapy because their cancer is symptomatic, then a better bet is to start with a chemotherapy without immune treatment. We know that um, that doesn't impact the safety of future targeted therapy and you know, is also effective in general for lung cancer, regardless of whether there's a targetable mutation or not. So 
uh, chemotherapy alone is, is the way to go if you must start before the results come back. And it's really avoiding immune therapy. It is the key teaching point. Thank you for sharing those key points with us. Before we close this episode, we would love to hear a little bit more about you all. Lisha, you have done most of your training in the Harvard system. You were a pioneer in the EGFR field, and now you're doing incredible work in early detection. Can you tell us a little bit about why you chose to focus on lung cancer? Oh, sure. It was it was all about mentorship for me um, and for many of us um, from, from MGH. We all shared a common mentor of Tom Lynch back in the day. Um, he's now uh, at Fred Hutch in Seattle and, and mentoring a lot of people out there and had also been at Yale in the past. Um, but I think when you're a trainee and you know, you know you're interested in cancer, um, so much of it does come down to just who you meet and a good mentor or even just a good interaction, brief interaction in clinic with someone can really excite you about an entire field and make you feel welcome. And unfortunately, a negative interaction uh, can also really turn you off um, unfairly sometimes to an entire field. So, and the more people I met in lung cancer, you know, going to the Santa Monica meeting, as we were talking about before, when I was a fellow going to the Santa Monica meeting was critical. I really met people from, uh, you know, all around the country. And, and uh, Dr. Lynch, my mentor, introduced me to Heather Wakeley, who was first year faculty. And he's like, you, you got to um, get to know Heather. She's, she's going places. And she's like, you know, one of the rising star young women in this field. And he was so right. And, you know, Heather's been a close friend of mine ever since then. And she's now the president of ISLC. So, um, you know, I think the people in the field really drew me to lung cancer and, uh, you know, we, we have, we have the best people, right? You guys are, are some of my favorite people in the world on this podcast. Yeah. I think objectively that's, <laughs> it's true. Charu, well, same question to you. Um, you know, I associate you so strongly with, with Philadelphia and the Penn program, but you did your initial medical training in India. Can you talk a little bit about the, the move to the U S and what made you decide to dedicate your career to thoracic cancers? Yeah, absolutely. And I think during happy hour, uh, NJ and I were uh, sharing our experiences of, you know, being an international medical graduate uh, with several others. So it almost felt like home. And NJ, I'm sure you can relate. We were talking about how uh, some of the uh, nuances in the English language often are so geographic and, and variable. So yeah, I, I moved to this country um uh, quite a while ago, and uh, I decided after medical school that I wanted to really focus on research and be at the precipice of scientific discovery. And honestly, there wasn't a lot of research occurring in India at the time. Although now, you know, when I look at uh, presentations from Tata Memorial, it just gives me so much warmth in my heart to see how far we've come. But at that time, it was clear that if I wanted to make an impact, I should uh, move. And that's what uh, really started it all. Uh, and I ended up in an oncology fellowship, um, really thinking that I maybe wanted to be a bone marrow transplanter. <laughs> and um, it wasn't until my first year of oncology outpatient clinics um, that I realized that maybe bone marrow transplant is not oh, the way to go for me. And I really fell in love with taking care of patients with lung cancer, especially. It was one of my favorite clinics. I just connected with um, the people, the patients. And, you know, this was a time when um, 
we were really talking about maintenance pemetrexid. We didn't really, we were just thinking about EGFR. ALK wasn't a thing yet. And, uh, you know, I, I just thought that as opposed to other solid tumors, there was just so much potential uh, for research and um, to make a difference. And that's really how it all began. And I've been lucky to stay in the Philadelphia area and now at Penn for over a decade and just thrilled to continue my work here. Hi, Sharu, for sharing that with us. Ivy, many of us have the pleasure and the honor to work with you in projects to run into you in meetings. As one of the co-founders of the EGFR Resisters Lung Cancer Group, can you share a little bit about your story and how the organization came about? Sure. When I was diagnosed in 2013, the end of 2013, lung cancer wasn't even on my radar screen. I didn't know that anyone with lungs could get lung cancer, and I had no idea that there were many different types of treatment for lung cancer. I started out, I had you know, some pain in my elbow and my neck. And after six months of physical therapy and other, you know, treatments, cortisone shots, etc., I found out that I had bone metastases from lung cancer. So it was stage four had spread to my bones. I had brain metastases as well. And I was completely shocked. Now, where I was fortunate was that I live very close to the city of Chicago. There's, you know, excellent medical care. I went immediately to a thoracic oncologist at an academic medical center and had biomarker testing right up front and found out that I was EGFR positive. But not everyone is that fortunate. And while I was lucky to get my testing, and I've been very fortunate as well in my treatment and response to my treatment, not everyone is that lucky. And I co-founded the EGFR Resistors in order to bring some of that knowledge and that, you know, good fortune that basically I had it to other patients. So in 2017, along with six other patients and caregivers, we created the group as a patient-driven advocacy organization to provide support and education for others living with EGFR positive lung cancer and really to work to improve the outcomes for patients in this type of lung cancer by accelerating research. We investigated unmet needs, we've created strategic partnerships, and our group has grown tremendously since our founding. We now have, I think it's close to 3,500 members, and members are patients and caregivers from around 90 countries all over the world. So we really can reach a lot of people, and our goal is that no one should ever be alone without these connections. I mean, it's wonderful now that people can connect through social media 
and group chats. And, you know, it's very important to me to have helped put that together, plus the collaborations that we have done to accelerate research and, and you know, kind of direct you know, our focus based on patient needs and fundraising for that research have also been very, very important to me and my co-founders to ultimately, hopefully, make EGFR positive lung cancer into a manageable chronic disease. We're not there yet, but that's the type of thing that, you know, we hope to work towards someday. Thank you, Ivy, for sharing with us. I have to say the EGFR resistors is a site that I often refer my patients and many of my patients just report back to me the support. They don't feel alone as uh, often they may don't self-identify with other patients or they don't know anybody who has lung cancer. So thank you for all the effort, Ivy. We are out of time for this episode. Lisha, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. And Charu, you too. Thank you for all your insights. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. And Ivy, thank you for coming on today as well. My pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 